Uh, good morning, everybody. If I can uh, have your attention, please, and encourage you to be taking your seats, especially to be filling in towards the middle as we're going to have another, another full house today. Um, uh, for those of you who weren't able to be with us uh, yesterday afternoon for our uh, opening session, my name is Will Inboden. I'm the um, executive director of the Clement Center for History, Strategy, and Statecraft here at UT, one of the uh, co-sponsors of today's gathering. And it's my honor to introduce our uh, um, o opening comments, opening remarks from Ambassador Bob, Bob Inman. Um, uh, so, okay, so. Uh, now, the... Um, uh, if I were to take the next two or three hours, I could read over uh, uh, Admiral Inman's very lengthy and impressive bio, but you've got that in your, uh, in your program folder, so I won't go through that. But let me just mention a, a couple of highlights, um, some of which came out yesterday. It would be hard to find anyone in this room, even, who has any intelligence or national security policy experience whose life and career hasn't been touched in some way by, by Admiral Inman. We heard Director Clapper reflecting yesterday on the Admiral presiding over his promotion ceremony to Colonel um, at the NSA in the, in the 70s. Um, Steve Slick, our incoming uh, director of the Intelligence Studies Project uh, has fond memories of being sworn into the CIA as a young, uh, young, uh, young agent uh, 28 years ago by Admiral Inman. Um, Steve Hadley has fond memories of uh, receiving some mentorship and career advice from Admiral Inman in the in the early 70s. I think Steve was about 10 at the time. Um, uh, um, just about all of us here would have such uh, such anecdotes uh, from from the Admiral. And likewise, the very fact of this gathering today would not have happened without Admiral Inman when he uh, left government left full-time government service in 1983 and relocated to Austin, uh, become a, a, a commercial leader in, the, in uh, helping really to develop the high-tech sector here. He also became very involved at his alma mater here at UT Austin and really helped pioneer the creation of uh, the two national security centers that are sponsoring this today. The, the Strauss Center and the Clements Center uh, would not have been able to come into existence without his, his leadership and support, and he's an active board member for, for both, of our, both of our entities. Finally, I'll say this. He's a a man with a very extensive vocabulary, but there's one word I've learned he doesn't know the meaning of, and that's retirement. Um, uh, I won't say anything about his age other than to say that I hope I'm going as strong, uh, even half as strong and vigorous as he is now, if, if I'm blessed to reach those years. He maintains a grueling schedule of uh, business leadership, investing, uh, teaching full-time at the university, mentoring countless, uh, countless generations of, of new students, uh, and he's been a, a Personal, personal friend and mentor to me. I certainly wouldn't be here in Austin without him. So it's an honor to introduce Admiral Bob Inman. Thank you, Will. Um, I'm 83, for the record. Uh, it's a great privilege to welcome you all here today. Uh, what a great start we got for this conference from uh, Bill McRaven and Jim Clapper yesterday. Uh, and gratitude to both uh, Bobby Chesney and Will Inboden for bringing this together and for their staffs who did. Uh, in noting the other uh, sponsors, for which we're grateful, I have to tell a story. Uh, when I was director of NSA, uh, a character named Lynn Moodis Paul came to see me uh, just to tell me he was starting a new organization called Security Affairs Support Organization. And my supportive things were, why in the world would you want to do that? Uh, and I look what it's gone into, being, having been privileged to be awarded the William O. Baker Award some years ago 
But what a great impact that organization has had on supporting the intelligence community over the years. Um, and Raytheon Strong Support is well known. We are privileged to have uh, some additional uh, people here to take part in this schedule. Um, John Negroponte had to drop out because of a family emergency, and in his usual way, Jim Clapper volunteered to take his place on the panel. He mandatorily has to be out the door at 10.30. So, uh, Michael Allen, it's your charge to make sure that that occurs on time. Uh, and uh, Mike McConnell, here to be part of it. Um, I will, uh, I'll be judicious in my remarks on this part. Uh, let me just simply say, as I look back over 31 years in the Navy and then 32 years in the private sector, but in that two and a half years on the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, uh, I got to track and watch the evolution of the intelligence community and of many careers in that process. Organizations facilitate or hamper getting about doing the business that needs to be done. But it is talented, thoughtful, dedicated leaders that make the difference. And the challenge, uh, always but certainly critically in front of us now, is to ensure that we bring along, uh, provide experience, and develop the leaders that these organizations are going to critically require. Because life isn't going to get easier in the years out in front of us. Uh, I remember uh, that promotion ceremony that Jim Clapper talked about. And the reason I remember it was the enormous pride his father had in watching Jim be promoted to colonel. This is a career Air Force together in the process. Um, I meddled in the careers, of, in the Navy, I controlled the careers for about seven years. It wasn't question of meddling. And I sent Bill Studeman and Mike McConnell to jobs uh, with commanders, captains, well, actually to his lieutenants, on, to prepare them for the potential of leading NSA. Um, I did not always get my way. Uh, I had planned that Jim Clapper would future be director of the National Security Agency, and I couldn't get the Air Force to cooperate with me. Uh, Defense Intelligence Agency benefited uh, NGA later in the process. When Bob Gates uh, acceded to the president's request that he leave A&M and become the Secretary of Defense, we spent a lot of time talking down here in the October time frame on things he would need to do when he took up the job. And one of those was staffing. And the question of who to put in the job of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. There were several candidates talked about. Uh, but what stood out about Jim Clapper as the candidate was he listened. He listened before he acted. And he also had a sense of humor. And those were going to be critical features in making it work. Uh, Bob Gates uh, made the choice, and uh, the country has benefited. Uh, it certainly went a long way toward preparing him for the job that he has now. Um, 
And my basic theme as we turn to uh, the challenges of listening, how things are going, I would urge you just keep in mind and assess uh, the leadership skills that how, and how they were developed in the people you were going to listen to and then take up this mantle of how do you think about helping prepare the leaders of the future. It's why I'm particularly pleased that so many students uh, were here yesterday and here again today. I hope those are fresh recruits, uh, many of them for the intelligence community in the years coming forward. But more than that, that they think early. Uh, what are the jobs they need to take uh, to enhance, to develop the leadership skills that are going to be important, uh, ultimately, in the success of those careers? And for those who are at midpoints and still moving along, uh, remember how important mentoring is to this process. Um, I still do a fair amount of it. I enjoy doing it in the process. That's one of the reasons that I'm still teaching um, two classes in the fall, one in the spring in the process. I meddle less uh, in what's going on in the intelligence community now. That's because most of them have forgotten who I am in this process. You all were very kind yesterday to respond uh, to Jim Clapper's introduction. Um, the last true confession I have to make, because um, it's out there on the internet, you can easily find it. Back in January 1996, the then uh, former Secretary of Defense, Dr. Harold Brown, my boss when I was running NSA, um, was chairing a commission about reorganizing the intelligence community, exploring what it had done well, what it was doing poorly. And I got invited to be a witness. I wouldn't miss the opportunity to you know, offer a lot of proposals. So I proposed, January 96, creating a director of national intelligence. And I then also proposed severing, splitting up almost all the intelligence agencies that were currently involved. I proposed uh, taking all the intelligence organizations, all the intelligence analysis organizations, CIA, DIA, INR, putting together an intelligence analytical agency uh, to cover the entire world, at least two experts on every island country that existed. I proposed taking the clandestine service, CIA, and all the clandestine intelligence activities of the military and putting them into intelligence operations agency that would do covert operations non-lethal. And if you were going to do lethal, institutional requirement to change, hand that off to special forces. And not wanting to leave anybody not angry, I uh, proposed splitting the FBI along the British lines, Scotland Yard and MI5. And when I finished, uh, Dr. Brown uh, kind of said, well, that was all very interesting, Bobby, but we're into evolution, not revolution. <laughs> and I think if you look at 2004, the recommendations, we're still talking about evolution. So one of the challenges for you to contemplate was evolution enough to give the country its capabilities it needs in the future? And to get us on time at that point, Michael Allen and the panelists, would you please, are you going to do any more introductions, Will, on this process? Great. Would you please comment? I'm, my pleasure to turn the floor over. Thank you, Adam. Thank you.
was helping my elders. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Admiral Edmund. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I want to say a special thanks to the University of Texas and, of course, ENSA for sponsoring this conference today. Um, the Intelligence Reform Act and the debate that we're having, sometimes people disparage it as, well, it's a bureaucratic debate about unnecessary layers of bureaucracy or moving boxes around. But really, I think what we're trying to look at today is the effectiveness of our government, especially the effectiveness of our intelligence community in a multifaceted world with a variety of different threats. Um, after 9-11, the American people, the Congress, demanded more from the intelligence community. They demanded better sharing of information. They, in effect, argued that we needed to do a better job of fusing together information that was collected abroad with information or intelligence that was collected domestically. And they asked for a more integrated effort to fight a new kind of threat, stateless international terrorists and, of course, counterproliferation uh, or proliferating entities around the globe. Um, Director Clapper long before the 9-11 Commission came around, and sometime after Admiral Enman gave his talk to the uh, Aspen Brown Commission, you argued very persuasively in a variety of settings. Um, I, I, I uncovered a slide deck that you delivered in, at Harvard in the 1990s, arguing that what we really needed to organize the intelligence community effectively was that a DNI needed or a, or a DCI needed authority, direction, and control over all the entities in the intelligence community, especially the factories of intelligence, the National Security Agency, what we now know as NGA, um, and maybe even elements of DIA. Um, my question to you is, would you be able to do your job better today if you have that undisputed authority, direction, and control over all the entities, or at least the major entities in the intelligence community. Over to me first, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I'd say at the outset that um, I'm being simplistic here, but if you go back in histories, we had 9-11, so let's reorganize. And... Uh, having done uh, re- reorganizations uh, over the course of my career to, to include the two agencies I had the privilege of serving as director of, <clears throat> uh, I, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten less and less enamored of uh, reorganization as a method of curing some problem. Um, whenever you reorganize, there are always second and third order effects and unintended consequences that um, – accrue from that. And, you know, you redo the wiring diagram, it makes the poobahs on the seventh floor happy, but in the trenches, those reorganizations have consequences in ways sometimes subtle that uh, senior people don't see. So I've become less and less enamored of that. There is no such thing as the perfect mousetrap when it comes to organizing. Uh, What we have today is by no means perfect 
uh, as a Harvard Business School graduate might draw the wiring diagram, but that's our system. The, the argument you, you get into here, I think, somewhat is, well, shouldn't we have a, a secretary of intelligence, have a cabinet department of intelligence? Um, at one point uh, in, in my youth, that might have been quite appealing. It also would have been, uh, I think, in light of what's happened, uh, it would have posed a lot of civil liberties and privacy concerns uh, among our citizens, having a juggernaut intelligence organization like that. Uh, which um, might, uh, again, from an efficiency expert standpoint, uh, be better. But I think it would raise other concerns, again, those second and third order effects and unintended uh, consequences. There is an argument for um, tailored intelligence serving each of the cabinet departments. Right now, the national intelligence community and its programmatic manifestation, the National Intelligence Program, straddles six cabinet departments and two separate uh, entities, the, the two separate entities being CIA and, and, and my staff. And that, ha that poses challenges. There's no question about it. But each of those entities has certain crucial roles in each of the departments. Department of Defense, of course, which is the biggest elephant in the living room here, has four of the agencies, three of which are combat support agencies. That was alluded to briefly yesterday. So those agencies, meaning NSA, NGA, and DIA, have responsibilities in a combat support context for the military in supporting uh, our, our warfighters. So that role has to be acknowledged and recognized. The aforementioned INR, an organization that punches way above its weight for as small as it is, it does render very important tailored intelligence support to the Secretary of State. And so it goes with uh, the other cabinet departments. Um, so, you know, I, I, can't, uh, I can't say that uh, today uh, that uh, would I be an advocate for, say, having a, you know, putatively a, a cabinet department of, of intelligence. I'm not sure that would be best for the American system. Admiral McConnell, um, the 9-11 Commission, and in part, some of the members of Congress who worked on the Intelligence Reform Act of 2004 really had great expectations for what they wanted the Director of National Intelligence to be able to do. They used terms like a quarterback. They wanted someone who could, quote, knock heads together, knock down stovepipes, force sharing of innovation, force recalcitrant bureaucracies, or so goes the narrative, force these individuals to be able to work more closely together. Um, you gave some very interesting testimony at the Senate Intelligence Committee while you were DNI, and you said something to the effect of, I wouldn't call me a director of national intelligence. That's not what the law gave me. You said I'm something closer to a, to a coordinator of national intelligence. I wonder what brought you to that conclusion and what you think the solution is, if indeed we need one. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Michael. Two things to, to start off. First of all, I want to acknowledge uh, your book, Blinking Red, as a public service. So any serious student of national security intelligence and how the community fits together and, and what is the process for um, proposing and, and affecting legislation, 
uh, it should be required reading. So that was a great public service. I only wish you had written the book before I became the DNI. I would, <laughs> the the um, second thing I would acknowledge is uh, I always defer to my elder. Um, General Clapper's only been doing this for 51 years, and I'm a piker at 48 years, so um, I would defer to him. Now, I want to start with your question to General Clapper, direction, authority, and control. Those are the key words in government language if you're in charge of something. And the National Security Act 1947, as amended, finally gave the Secretary of Defense direction, authority, and control over all parts of the Department of Defense in 1986. So we played with this for a long, long time. So I understood it in those terms. I was privileged to be the intel officer for General Powell um, in the first Gulf War. And so I watched how the law not only required jointness in the military, but it uh, incentivized it. If you are a young officer aspiring to um, promotion to senior ranks, you, you were disqualified unless you had joint credentials. So when I went, uh, was asked by the president to serve as the DNI, and I went in, I, I had this background or baggage, depending on your point of view, and uh, what I wanted to try to do was at least get us to a position of uh, uh, joint duty. If you were going to be promoted to a senior level, you'd be required to leave your parent organization, CIA, NSA, DIA, whatever, whatever it might be, because I always found you had a much broader base and a better understanding if you would leave your parent organization and have experience uh, um, across a wider spectrum. So when I was asked in the, um, the Senate Select Committee Intelligence about my role and what it is, um, I described it as a coordinator, not a director, because I do, the DNI does not have um, direction, control, and authority over all the entities. They work for another cabinet officer. So um, I was just trying to explain it to the committee uh, where we were. Now, would I advocate a secretary of intelligence? Uh, I have to agree with the comments that uh, General Clapper made. There are some advantages to doing that. Uh, if you'll recall, um, uh, Secretary Bob Gates was asked to be the original DNI, and he turned it down because it was there was ambiguity associated with its roles and responsibilities. If you go back and read your book, a lot of those Congress members were trying to get direction, control, and authority of the assets. But there are some downsides. Uh, when I was a youngster, the Navy's number one priority was uh, anti-submarine warfare, ballistic missiles, our uh, Soviet submarines carrying ballistic missiles that could get inside our decision line. To be effective, I had to become an expert in sound in water. Now, I would ask you at a national level, the CIA, with what they're focused on, global issues, would you likely normally have experts that were focusing on something as esoteric as sound in water? So what General Clapper said about... Uh, Intelligence organizations that serve the mission of the, of the organization they're in, that's absolutely essential. So how do you preserve uh, focus on the operations of a given organization and still be managed at a national level? That's the dilemma we have. So I think we could have a secretary of intelligence. It would make us more effective in uh, some areas, but you would give up so much in the other areas. So this is a dilemma for us.
Um, I, I can make the case either way. I've sat on either side of the fence. Uh, I suspect, if you ask me my honest opinion, the effectiveness of the DNI today is entirely personality dependent based on the way the law is written. And what I mean by that, it depends on the president, the national security advisor, the secretary of defense, other members, and the DNI, and how do they work as a team. And if they work as a team, uh, it works. And if there's friction or um, lack of expertise or whatever the issues may be, then we will be less effective. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I think uh, something that uh, Mike said just prompted a thought I would uh, share, which is um, oftentimes the uh, pejorative term stovepipe is applied to the agencies, particularly those that represent uh, collection disciplines. Uh, I just I always like to remind people that those stovepipes, uh, again, a often pejorative term, are also the home of the tradecraft. It requires certain unique skill sets to do SIGINT, certain unique skill sets to do geospatial intelligence, certain unique skill sets to do human. And so the, those agencies that are responsible for championing those disciplines, uh, that is a very important function, and it's one of the great strengths of the American intelligence enterprise that we have those so-called stovepipes or silos of excellence, whatever you want to call them, that grow, nurture, advocate, and protect the respective tradecraft. The challenge, of course, is not to allow that to become counterproductive or those silos become walls, and you cannot uh, foster, promote the collaboration where you exploit and take advantage of the complementary strengths and skill sets that each one of those tradecraft represent. The other thing is that I think what would happen, let's just, just say for the sake of discussion, that we took all the, well, the agencies in the Department of Defense, whose first letter is N, out of department, out of the department. What the department would do over time is simply regenerate uh, the SIGINT capability that is absolutely vital to warfighting or geoint. Uh, those capabilities the department must have. So even if we had a cabinet department of intelligence, I, I, I know and knowing how government works, that over time those capabilities would re, be regenerated at each one of the cabinet departments that require intelligence support. To Mike's point about joint duty, and he is so right, he was a great champion for it when he was DNI and I was USDI. Well, we now have thousands of employees across the intelligence community who have done joint duty. <clears throat> and he's quite right, just as Goldwater Nichols had such profound effect on the Department of Defense by promoting um, joint duty, so it is in the intelligence community. And I watch the effects of this all the time when people flow through my place, ODNI, which is composed almost half are assignees, detailees from the rest of the community. And the, the personal impact it has, I've seen this time and time again, when they leave the joint duty assignment, which over time is having profound impact institutionally because of their having had that joint experience. And of course, we're talking about thousands of employees are going to rise through the ranks and lead the community. So there is a perhaps subtle, subjective 
uh, over time transformation that's that's going on that would that's kind of hard to legislate. Again, I think my comment of yesterday about for every functional problem nail, you don't necessarily need a legislative sledgehammer. Um, before before moving on to um, some of the things we've been able to accomplish in the first year, the first years of the DNI, David, let me try one more time on an organizational question. As you're a CIA officer, even though you're a DIA today, you were senior director for intelligence and ran the process of the Bush administration's consideration of the 9-11 Commission recommendations. Everyone, I think, at the time wanted a stronger, centralized intelligence community leader. But did we need to separate the community management functions from the Central Intelligence Agency? After all, the reason we created the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence in the first place, was to be able to do this job and by severing those community management functions from Langley, Virginia, did we disadvantage the DNI substantially because it created another bureaucratic rival and because he didn't have enough of a base of support to push an agenda through complicated bureaucracies? Thank you, Michael, and it indeed is a privilege to be here today. Uh, but now I'm actually feeling very good since I'm the youngster on the panel with only 32 years of service uh, and uh, equally privileged to wearing the closest thing to the Longhorns colors today. Um, I am, by the way, the maybe ultimate joint duty qualified officer at 13 years since I returned from my uh, home agency that I, I dearly love, CIA, uh, and, the, and the profound privilege of being the deputy director at DIA for four years and now its acting director for whatever time the Senate decides on a confirmation of a permanent one. Um, on your question, Michael, I mean, to me, it's, it, it, it's very interesting in terms of, to borrow a, a line from Mike Hayden, in terms of the, the the great strength in creating a DNI is that it allowed a DCIA, what we call DCIA today, but DCI then, to actually do the day job of running CIA, a very complex agency, a very uh, rich in history agency by way of, of uh, uh, what, what it does and, and performs on behalf of the nation. And that in my observations from 1982 and on as, as a very young entry-level officer all the way to uh, uh, joining the senior ranks in, in the uh, late 1990s, that I, I sensed that the DCI's full-time job really was uh, to a large extent concentrated on running the Central Intelligence Agency and much less so on what was at uh, his disposal, which was the community management staff. As a result, I think by separating the two, I, I take a, a glass half full rather than half empty by creating a DNI. That is, it gave the DCIA the, uh, the, 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 the power, the strength, and, and the daily focus to really run the complex aspects of the community. I think going back to comments both that DNI Clapper and Admiral McConnell have said, the personality aspects really matter a great deal. The relationships then between a DNI, a DCIA, and the heads of the other um, IC community leaders 
matter far more than, than, in fact, the statute and then the subsequent revisions made to Executive Order 1233 uh, in, uh, in July of 2008, in that by building that bridge, that relationship with the DCIA, the DNI really accomplishes uh, a, a lot of what uh, he sets out to do, and obviously DNI Clapper and, and DNI McConnell uh, could could um, have a different perspective that, uh, on that, but I think that relationship is far more important than the debates we were having in the summer of 2004 and, and into the fall, and then, of course, with the passage of uh, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act in, in December over this whole issue of, of, of a zero-sum game that we were taking from a DCI and therefore uh, weakening that person. Um, and and that's, that's certainly my personal view, Michael, um, in that uh, it, you, you actually have a stronger DCIA today as a result because of, of what, if you will, his day job consists of. So this is a question. Oh, yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, let me, I just want to <clears throat> add to what David has said. I, I, I don't mean to be critical or I don't mean to offend anyone here, but in the 20 or 25 years' worth of DCIs, Director of Central Intelligence, that, that I observed, that in most cases, one notable exception I'll speak to, but in most cases, sooner or later, mostly sooner, uh, directors of central intelligence slash directors of central intelligence became consumed with agency-centric issues. It's quite understandable. Uh, Running any of these agencies, I can tell you, is a full-time job, and particularly one as uh, storied as CIA, given it's the complexity and controversy surrounding its missions. That is a full-time job. The other thing I think, and I think this does speak for a DNI, is that in the last three years we've been confronted with uh, successive budget cuts. And so I think it puts the, if we had the old model where the director of the Central Intelligence Agency also had to serve as the director of Central Intelligence, puts him in, or her, if we had a her, in an untenable position and trying to cut across the community, but yet have to do that to, to his or her own agency. So I think it's been a litmus test for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to try to manage these cuts as a corporate endeavor, as a corporate undertaking, uh, across the community and making c- conscious decisions about where to invest, where to protect, and where to cut, regardless of agency uh, stovepipe lines. So let's address the budget authority issue. I mean, as the students of the intelligence reform effort know, we, the President and the Congress, rejected moving the NSA, NRO, and NGA underneath a director of national intelligence. It rejected having the CIA and the DNI as one. Um, And we all told ourselves that, and Director Clapper referenced it yesterday, that he who has the gold rules. We told ourselves that if you have full budget authority and the ability to hire and fire, that will compensate for some of the disadvantages of a DNI separate from or not having authority, direction, and control over a variety of entities. I've, I wish Ambassador Negroponte were here today. Uh, he's, he's very much missed. He's said that he didn't think the budget authority was strong enough to be able to get done what he needed to get done 
and Secretary Gates sort of called the DNI's budget authority a nuclear bomb, something you're never really going to be able to use because to deny one of the component agencies money would in effect be um, hampering a critical national security mission. So David, I wonder since, let's start with you and if we could come down the row here, you were the chief of staff to Ambassador Negroponte, you were a deputy for Blair and for McConnell. Mm -hmm. Are there examples where the DNI's budget authority has a bit, uh, allowed him to pack the punch that we thought we were giving him when we created the position? If you think of budgets in government well beyond the one-year horizon in terms of what uh, the members of Congress and obviously the president then uh, signs into law by way of an appropriations bill, the building of the budget over a five-year period and if you look out at, at that extended period, I think the DNI has uh, significant authorities by way of shaping that budget. The closer in you are and the year of execution, it gets extraordinarily weak. Why? Because moving then programmatically the dollars of a, an appropriated funding line for uh, the GDIP, which is the DIA budget line, for example, and as uh, uh, two seniors who have run agencies know this very well, thou shall not touch my budget this year, because that becomes very difficult. And so if you're measuring the DNI's authorities in that context, they're in fact very limited. What DNI Clapper has done, and this is part of uh, what Admiral Inman was talking about, evolutionary change. I think over the 10 years, what has grown into a practice now is the budget review that is, is done and coordinated through the chief executive officer of the community, and that's the DNI. And that is sitting at the table and making profound programmatic uh, decisions by way of investments as well as disinvestments, enabled absolutely in a stronger way in a period of time of budget decreases rather than increases. I can add, Michael, uh, there's one other factor I think we have to remember here, uh, with uh, Congressman Thornberry, one of my overseers here, I have to point out that uh, uh, this isn't strictly an executive branch um, uh, consideration. The Congress has a lot to say about moving money around. There are very strict rules about reprogramming, which apply to us and, and the rest of the executive branch. So. It isn't like we can all sit around within the executive branch and decide how, who will dictate over the allocation, dictate the allocation of funding because the Congress, appropriately so, plays a major role in this. So we can conjure up all kinds of constructs about moving money around when you have to be mindful of the, the representatives of the people, which is the Congress. Can I come back, though, to an example, a very concrete example that ties into uh, DNI Clapper's uh, remarks yesterday, where he talked about the capability to, in the out years, uh, dwell on a particular geographic area on, on uh, high above the earth. Those decisions are driven far more by the requirements and needs of the intelligence community than solely a budget decision. However, those trade-offs, without getting into the details here, had to come from somewhere else in a period of decreasing budgets by way of the prioritization 
of an investment schema that will go five to ten years out by which we as a corporate board of agencies, particularly the large five agencies, contribute to that decision-making. In other words, I believe four years of building budgets at DIA and now into my fifth year, I can say we do that today far more corporately than we did even five years ago. Admiral McConnell, do you want to address uh, both budget authority and I, I will. Um, first of all, let me acknowledge uh, David Shedd. For those, for those in the audience that don't know uh, David's background, it was mentioned, but um, his pen and hand controlled much of this process to get us where we are today. Um, uh, when I went in, he had All been the parts that work. <laughs> <laughs> when I went in, he was uh, he was having a ball being uh, the chief intelligence officer for the DNI, and I said, David, I I want you to do policy. And after he threw up, uh, <laughs> and, and we literally had this discussion for ninety days. Uh, he said, All right, all right, I'll become your director of policy, and uh, I'll tell you that all the things that we we're able to accomplish. Uh, we got the FISA legislation updated. We uh, were able to do the Executive Order 12333 that was mentioned. David orchestrated all that process, and uh, was one, he is one of my heroes. Uh, now, budget. Uh, I would submit that the first three DNIs, uh, Ambassador Negroponte, Admiral Blair, and myself, although it's described well in your book and it's captured that what the authorities are, and for the first three of us, it was never tested because it was increasing budget and continued focus, and so we didn't have to deal with it very much. I think the way it's been described is if you tamper with the year of execution, you're going to have a dogfight. So shaping the budget for the future, that's the power of the DNI, and I would defer to General Clapper. If, if you're effective in doing that, then, then I think the DNI becomes more than a coordinator and you really start to guide and direct this community. Admiral McConnell, I wonder if you could – I want to move more to what we've done in the last 10 years and that we can chalk up to um, the reorganization. Uh, the point was made yesterday and the point's been made by many of, well, of course the U.S. intelligence has improved since 9-11. We increased funding up to $80 billion. We almost doubled the number of personnel. We learned the lessons of 9-11. Um, of course, all that was on display in the Abbottabad raid. Um, what can we cite as concrete examples where the actual reorganization, the creation of a DNI and the NCTC, have made the country safer? Or is the answer, look, it's a future-oriented budget process of the maybe unsexy but critical elements of building a community and making sure it works and the dividends are going to be uh, coming in the future. How, how would you address that, Admiral? Well, I, I commented on the future and shaping uh, us as a community, and I think that's very, very important. But um, it depends on the players about the day-to-day -day activity. Now, it, as you know, President Bush chose to have a, uh, an intelligence briefing um, every day, uh, always six days a week, sometimes seven, uh, made my day start pretty early. Mm -hmm. But um, when you're in that dialogue and there are things happening, it gave you the opportunity to contribute and to be involved and to take the president's direction or the national security advisor's direction back to the community. And when you're speaking for the president, people listen. 
Now, the example I would use is uh, we discovered a, um, a nuclear reactor in the desert of uh, eastern Syria, built down in a canyon, that was about to go operational. It was built by the uh, North Koreans, and it was a very, very secret operation even inside Syria. So there it was, and we discovered it, and it was going to go operational. Now, can you imagine we're in a war in Afghanistan, we're in a war in Iraq, um, the policy debate is raging, and we found a nuclear re reactor that's about to go operational. The the angst the president must have felt about what do I do? And the advice he was getting was all over the map. Mr. President, you've got to bomb it right now. The, his answer to that was, well, do you think that might inflame the region and cause me some greater problems? So the advice was all over the map. The president chose, he said, look, this is a very hard, serious problem. I want the advice and uh, dialogue from my most senior advisors and I have to decide what to do about this. We consulted very closely with Israelis because they had, um, uh, they saw it as an existential threat, uh, even more of a threat than, than from our point of view. And so what the president decided to do, he said, I want to know everything we can know about it. I want to restrict the information so we can have it at a very high dialogue. And he turned to me and said, make that happen. So I called um, all the heads of uh, the collecting agencies, and I said, here's the direction from the president. And I will tell you, everyone was was incredible in their response to that, about how we focused, how we coordinated, and how we um, saw it through to closure. Now, as everybody maybe remembers, uh, the Israelis finally decided that they were going to destroy that facility, and they did. Now, uh, the bad news is, while I insisted to the president that we have an obligation to inform the Congress, and he agreed to allow me to inform the senior and uh, the chair and the ranking member of the oversight committees. We also uh, inform what's called the Gang of Eight. But that's all we informed, because this was what he was afraid this was going to erupt and it would get out of control and so on. Um, the day that it was, we were going up to inform all the members of the committee, both committees, um, it appeared on the front page of the New York Times. And it was, it, we, it was there, we found it, we worked it over the summer, it was destroyed, it was no longer a problem, and so we went up with good news. The Congress beat the hell out of all of us. The issue wasn't that it was a solved problem, the issue was, why didn't you tell us? And we said, well, but we told, but it, it wasn't good enough. There is, there is inherent tension, appropriately so, it's the way the founders set it up. No one has absolute power, there's always oversight, there's always a check and balance. And that's the way our system works. And I think in this case, uh, we served the president well to deliver what he needed in a way that he needed it. And the Congress was informed at a level, but they weren't happy with the completeness and uh, totality of the information. Uh, but that's the way our system works, and I think it worked well. Michael, if I could uh, comment on, uh, I think your question had to do with examples of yes, change. One, uh, I think, cr a crucial change that has uh, happened since 9-11 is the uh, combining, if you will, of both the foreign intelligence, which is the classic historical role of the, of the community, with the domestic. That has profoundly changed uh, the nature of the intelligence community. 
So the inclusion of the FBI, for example, as a part of the intelligence community, um, NCTC, and I think, I don't know if Matt Olson's here, I'll give, give Matt a, a shout out, who did so much during his time as director of NCTC to embody um, both the, the substance and the spirit of what intelligence integration is all about, not only at the sort of federal level, but vertically to state, local, tribal, and private sector. And NCTC, I think, is uh, symbolic of that change um, in bringing, brid bridging that gap, because those of us, all of us old guys up here, us old geezers that grew up in the intelligence community, it was beat into us about the firewall between foreign and domestic. Now, that is not as mature as the foreign aspect, which we've been doing for a long time and we've, we've kind of figured out. But that's a huge change, and that a major portion of the FBI is funded in the National Intelligence Program. A lot of people don't realize that. Thousands of billets in the FBI are programmed as uh, part of the intelligence community. And Bob Mueller and now Jim Comey, who is fantastic director of FBI, have really taken this to the next level. And Jim's own personal commitment, for example, to eyesight, so that the FBI will play in the IT enterprise, which is cr the crucial foundation for how we do business. Another aspect I want to mention is, is a manifestation of the change is the construct of the DNI rep, DNI representatives. Overseas, these are chiefs of station at uh, our embassies, led by CIA. And there's someone in the audience today, Steve Slick, who was the template when he served overseas as a DNI rep. Yes, chief of station, but his second hat. And what occasions that is the proliferation of the presence of other parts of the intelligence community, each bringing their own capabilities and strengths uh, into an embassy context. In a domestic context, we have 12 DNI SACs or ADICs, uh, assistant directors in charge for the two major FBI organizations in New York and L.A., who also are dual-hatted as DNI reps. Again, another manifestation in a domestic context of integration. Let me just uh, add a disclaimer. I think probably all three of us here wish we could do faster and harder on every part of the integration piece of that we work at. But when I look at the the role of the DNI over the last 10 years, things that I don't believe would have happened or certainly would have not been shaped the way that they've been shaped. As we look at insider threat that the DNI talked about yesterday or last, uh, last evening in his remarks, how do we get to that place where as a community we have the attribution aspects that protect the information yet provide the access to it? The intelligence community IT enterprise, eyesight, probably the most revolutionary aspect of information sharing that this community has contemplated in 60 years by way of, of, of leveraging cloud computing, apps capabilities, and so forth across the spectrum. In the future, I think one of the greatest threats we face in the, uh, the, the, the present and clear present danger of our adversaries is in space, space and counter space. 
I believe the DNI, alongside of the Department of Defense and the combat support agencies, and obviously the Air Force and Strategic Command and so forth, are going to play a very vital role in bringing together those required capabilities on space and um, counter space. The buildup of our partnership relationships and information or intelligence sharing with them on the disclosure side, the role again that the DNI brings to the community in uh, uh, facilitating that. And we've already mentioned, <clears throat> I do not believe FISA reform under your leadership, Mike, would have occurred um, without, again, a DNI to bring the community, to bring that into uh, literally the 21st century. And then, of course, uh, defining the, 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 the boundaries and the, the opportunities within Executive Order uh, 12333 that uh, Gina Genton worked so very hard uh, alongside of a number of us to, uh, to, to bring together in further refining than what IRTPA meant to say within those uh, four boundaries of the law. I don't think we can have a conversation about what's happened in intelligence in the last 10 or 15 years without talking about Iraq WMD. Um, we've made, and Tom Fingers in the audience and others who worked on this under Negroponte and McConnell, um, I think it was Colin Powell's view and maybe Steve Hadley's as well, is that if we had had a DNI who had been able to not just take the CIA's analytical output on certain elements of a WMD program, but had been able to better incorporate information from the Department of Energy or other players across the community, we might have had a different analytical product um, before the war in Iraq. So I wonder if you think the analytical integrity process has improved since we have a direct, since we've had a director of national intelligence. Uh, Michael, let me let me speak to that if I may first, since uh, my fingerprints were on that infamous national intelligence estimate of October 2002 on um, <clears throat> WMD in Iraq. Uh, I was present for the the uh, infib meeting that uh, approved that. And uh, there are all kinds of improvements that actually started before the DNI. And I, I need to credit George Tennant here for the, the a number of improvements that, that started under George's time and have progressed since then. And one of the major changes, which is a feature of every national intelligence board, is we start with a review of the sources that went into the NIE, which we didn't do in 2002. And that was the fundamental flaw with that NIE, where the sources were bad. And that the character, the character of the sources was not transparent to those who were participating in those meetings the way they were run then. So we've incorporated all kinds of changes that speak to analytic integrity, starting with characterization of all the sources each contributing agency head has to certify uh, the veracity of the sources that are used, footnoted, in every NIE. We have a very extensive vetting process. We use outside readers, uh, distinguished experts uh, in the subject matter at hand to review the NIEs. And I can tell you, we accommodate their critiques. We do what if we're wrong scenarios on certain controversial subjects. So we, and of course we've just published a new policy on, on uh, it sounds mundane, but it's important on footnoting 
and footnoting methodologies that we use, sourcing methodology, methodologies that we use in these NIEs. So there have been a whole series of improvements that have been made. By law, I have an analytic integrity office that every year reviews reporting, product reporting in the community, which we report to the Congress, on, and we've learned a lot about the statistics, statistical approach to analyzing the quality of our reporting. So lots of improvements uh, that have been made since the WMD in Iraq NIE, something I feel personally very strongly about since, as I say, my fingerprints were on that NIE. Uh, Michael, if I could just offer an example of what General Clapper is describing. Uh, the first um, charge for intelligence officers is uh, maintaining standards of integrity and having the courage to speak truth to power. And because you think about it, uh, leaders, politicians are inherently optimistic. Um, they think they have a vision of the future and they want things to go a certain way. And you're the guy who keeps showing up saying, sorry, boss, it's not going the way you envisioned it. Um, so my example of NIE and the improvement in the process, largely guided by Tom Finger, wherever he is in the, in the audience, uh, once uh, we had the, the issues with the NIE uh, of weapons of mass destruction, we were now tasked to do an update, our third update, on nuclear weapons in uh, Iran. And we went through the process that uh, General Clapper just described, uh, vetting the sources, reviewing outside view, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we got some new information. Now, if you think about a nuclear weapons program, uh, I would reduce it to basically three parts. You've got to have fissile materials. You've got to run that process. Uh, you've got to have a delivery platform, a missile or something, to get it from point A to point B. And you've got to have a weapon. Uh, what the Iranians chose to do uh, subsequent to our invasion of Iraq is they terminated their weapons program. And we gained access to that information in a critical time. So now, uh, while we've said two years in a row, we did the NIE, that they're about to have a nuclear weapon, and here's the timeline, we had new information that said they're still doing facile material, and they're still um, uh, building the rockets and testing them, but the weapons design they by, have deliberately halted. Now, we put that in the NIE, and we wrote it in such a way that we talked about halting the weapons design. We did not spend a lot of time in the key judgments about the missiles or the fissile material. So we took it in to the president. To, we've always briefed the president on our NIEs before we rolled them out to the entire community. He said, uh, Mike, that's not consistent with what you said earlier. And I said, yes, sir, when, you know, new source, and I mentioned it to you and so on. He said, uh, we have to go public. And I, I said, uh, but, sir, because I just gotten him to agree that we would no longer release the key judgments of NIEs to the public. Because I said, you know, it, it causes the community to start writing for the public, and so it's better if we kept them classified. He said, Mike, it's not consistent with what I've said publicly. We're going to go public. Now, I had uh, very senior members of the administration and the Congress tell me that I had done a disservice to my president and to my country. But my job is to speak to the power, and that's what we found, and that's what we reported, and um, we, we got, I think we were better for the process. So I would second in, in strong terms what General Clapper just described. The community is much, much better today about taking a hard problem, examining it eight ways from Sunday, 
looking at it inside out, doing an alternative analysis, doing a red team, and having it challenged by outside readers. So I hope that we wouldn't have a repeat of the weapons of mass destruction issue. Um, One other thing, if I could just add uh, something that Mike said that keyed me to, uh, I think, a very important feature of a uh, national intelligence estimate is the prominent display of dissent, not buried in a footnote someplace. But if there is dissent, that it is prominent and that whoever the dissenter is can uh, have whatever space is needed to uh, explain uh, their reservation. That actually serves, uh, I think, better serves the policymaker than uh, trying to come up all the time with a, a homogenous uh, common denominator, which always, oftentimes will be the lowest common denominator. I, I do want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, the silverman Rob Commission report had 72 recommendations, and the president, President Bush, 43, accepted 70 out of those 72 recommendations. That became the roadmap in the spring of 2005 for the stand-up of the DNI, wherein many of those recommendations as practitioners uh, we put into place under Tom Fingar in terms of a number of the rigor, uh, rigorous aspects of tradecraft applicable to analysis and so forth. And it was under really the leadership of Steve and Dr. Rice and uh, as well as, uh, as the president himself and Fran Townsend actually in applying that. The second point I would make is the number of crises in the world have driven us to do joint product far more often today when we look at the premier product that reaches the president on a daily basis, more of those products today are jointly produced by combat support agencies. My own agency at DIA is a major contributor uh, to that, along with uh, uh, open source and so forth, in a way that it is far more integrated in the last several years uh, than it was before, and applying, again, the rigor of that tradecraft. Okay, great. Um, We've, I want to do uh, cover two more topics in the next 12 minutes, and then at the top of the hour we'll go to uh, questions from the audience. So please be thinking of what you want to ask. Um, I wanted to cover quickly, and these two topics are related, intelligence failure and warning. David, when you went to the Aspen Security Conference in July of 2013, you stated publicly that you thought the Syrian opposition was fragmenting and that it was your intelligence assessment that without an external force to sort of bolster what the opposition was up to, that there was the likelihood that this would metastasize and spread and destabilize others. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that and the role of the Defense Intelligence Agency and the intelligence community more broadly in indications and warning for policymakers? It's an area that um, we, we benefit from a lot of work in terms of the studies in academia and, and uh, within the uh, joint staff in terms of the Pentagon as well as in the intelligence community as to what uh, the standard should be for warning and then um, or the indications that would create the conditions for a heightened warning. And what I think the community has historically done very well is identify the trend lines that we bring to myriad customers to reflect a concern that we have 
in terms of something reaching a proverbial tipping point of, of concern. My comments at the Aspen Security Forum really had to do that absent exogenous pressures on that opposition in Syria, those 2,200 groups that um, were about 1,600 then, I believe, if memory serves, would in fact be very weak at the center and at the more benign end of that spectrum and the the extremist end uh, defined at that time more in the al-Nusra, al-Qaeda end of the spectrum would get stronger, more effective, and would spread outside the borders of Syria. So that was showing a trend. What the condition, the predictability of, of what would trigger that or the breakup between al-Nusra and what we call ISIL today, or AQI reconstituted as ISIL, was, is a much more difficult job to do. We do not do predictive very well at the tactical level when it comes to warning. So, um, I mean, I've heard through the years now the failure to discover Abdul Matalab before he got on the airplane was an intelligence failure. I've heard the rise of the Arab Spring might be justly considered a, an intelligence failure. In your estimation, David, and then we'll go to Director Clapper, with the deterioration of things in northern Iraq and the rest, is it fair to call the rise of ISIS and a failure by the intelligence community, a failure to warn the policymakers of an impending development? Absolutely not. I will not take that uh, upon ourselves that it was a failure. Could we predict how the Iraqi security forces in Mosul will behave on, on the, the, the fateful day that Mosul falls? Uh, no, we could not, again, in the predictive sense, do that. But the fact that AQI for the preceding uh, several months uh, had restored a very strong foothold outside uh, Fallujah and Ramadi and so forth in in Ambar province uh, was something that we were bringing forward as as an intelligence uh, as an intelligence matter. There is, of course, a constant effort on behalf of the intelligence community to improve. The, 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 the big data information that may exist out there that is not connected or interconnected by the analysts to be able to provide uh, a better warning in terms of, of uh, uh, giving the decision maker better options in terms of a response to it in what then, of course, the adversary would not know that we know. D- Director Clapper, can you help us unpack this a little bit? We've got yeah. 9-11 is a... People say, well, it was not a strategic intelligence failure, but it was a tactical intelligence well, failure. First, uh, How do you kind of think about philosophical this? comment here, about, which I mentioned yesterday, and that is the often uh, the sometimes failure, I think, of people to distinguish between this is an old saw and intelligence, but I think it applies. They distinguish the difference between mysteries and secrets. You know, secrets are knowable facts. Uh, and if, you know, you work hard enough at it, you can discern those facts. Mysteries get into the realm of clairvoyance. Um, and, you know, if you want clairvoyance from the intelligence community, well, you need to spend a lot more on intelligence than we are now. Um, but I, I think too often we're held to the same standard for divining secrets, knowable facts, and clairvoyance. Uh, so that's kind of point one. Um, I think the intelligence community does a pretty good job of 
portraying the general conditions that, that exist in a given warning situation. And, uh, you know, that doesn't get into the predicting uh, how events are going to turn out a year from now or two years from now. That, again, that gets into the, the clairvoyance thing. We did that during, uh, in the run-up to Arab Spring. Uh, you know, the community published a lot on <clears throat> the conditions that prevailed uh, in the Mideast in general, we, of course, did not predict, uh, no pun intended, the spark in terms of a fruit vendor in Tunisia um, who immolated himself, and that set off, again, poor pun, firestorm across the Mideast. No, we didn't predict that that would happen. Similarly, with uh, the instant case of ISIS uh, versus the Iraqi security forces, we had published and reported robustly on, as David indicated, on ISIS, its growth, its combat prowess. And similarly, we had published extensively and reported extensively on the deficiencies of the Iraqi security forces. What we did not foresee, which I acknowledge to the president, we did not foresee the collapse literally overnight of five divisions worth of Iraqi security forces. We didn't see that rapid deterioration. So, but the conditions that gave rise to that, that, that led to that, we certainly did, and the policymakers were well aware of it. So, I, so with stri- strategic intelligence failures, I think I'm hearing that, that the community is very good at warning of strategic problems on the horizon. But when it comes down to something that's more tactical, be it a terrorist getting on an airplane or the collapse of security forces overnight, it, it, should the intelligence well, community— Well, I, I think there's a difference, Michael, uh, between the two examples that you cite. I, I really do. Again, a knowable fact. Right. Um, you know, uh, again, I apologize for geezer history here. But uh, my war was Southeast Asia. I spent two tours there. I went to Vietnam in 1965. And we consistently uh, underestimated the ability of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese and, and consistently overestimated the ability of the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. <clears throat> I think we were too caught up in the fact that, gee, we gave them our, our equipment and they, they dressed up like us, so they, they must be as good as us. Well, they weren't. And... Fast forward to Desert Storm. I served when Mike was the J-2 for JCS. I was the chief of Air Force Intelligence. We profoundly overestimated the fighting, the will to fight, by the same aforementioned Iraqi security forces. So we overkilled with this huge force for Desert Storm, uh, which overwhelmed the uh, the Iraqi army. You know, it flew a UAV over, and, they, you know, 500 guys gave up. Um, so this, this, again, this gets back to this business of predicting subjective things like will to fight. So the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese had a cause. They had an ideology they strongly believed in, and the South Vietnamese did not. And so it is here with the Iraqi security forces. They, had, they did not have an ideology. They hated Maliki. And it was the whole Shia-Sunni thing. And so those units in the north, north of Iraq, northern part of Iraq, which is Sunni-dominated, melted away. And so this issue of, project, project, of predicting subjective factors like will to fight 
is a very difficult clairvoyant art form. It shouldn't be considered an intelligence failure uh, per se. That, is that, is unless, that, Michael, uh, you want to give us more money for intelligence so we I can do, be clairvoyant. Actually. I do, actually. <laughs> um, all right, what, one last question, then I'm, I'm please raise your hands here. Um, Director Clapper, you're, of course, the DNI, and you the, probably consider yourself the chief strategic warning officer in the country. I was struck by your remarks yesterday, some of which you said at INSA a month ago at the conference in Washington. Um, you cited a decline in, the sor in sources and methods, probably referring to the Snowden matter. Mm -hmm. You certainly cited a decline in budget, a degrade of our capabilities, damage to our cor corporate relationships, and conscious decisions not to target. You said we are taking more risk. Are you? Can I just play reporter here? What are you? What are you trying to tell us here? Are you? Are you giving us strategic warning that? Well, I'm simply. I'm simply saying that it, it, it's hard to ignore these factors that you just uh, uh, elucidated, uh, which are accurate uh, about you know what I said uh, last night. And all I'm suggesting uh, to anyone, uh, the Congress, uh, the American people, that because of this, we are accepting more risk. Uh, I don't see how you could come to another conclusion. Um, my, um, uh, my objective here has been to, even though we have, we've had to, for lots of reasons, sort of turn the faucet down, so to speak, what I've tried very hard to do and will continue to try to do is to uh, protect the plumbing, if you, you know, if you get my drift here on the metaphor, so that if, if and when we have to reconstitute, we can. You know, it's an old saw in Washington that uh, administrations come and go, policies come and go, foreign governments come and go, pol uh, um, friends come and go, enemies accumulate. And so <laughs> in the future, we, you know, the conditions could be much different. So it's very important, I think, even as we have a lessening of capability, which is really what this is, and in doing so we accept more risk that we can reconstitute in the future. You know, Admiral McRaven, Chancellor to be McRaven, said something very profound yesterday, which I, I strongly resonate with, <laughs> when asked about the impacts of sequestration on the military. And I thought he was right on the money in, in his response, and it applies just as much to intelligence. The American people have to decide what military they want. If the American people are content with a hollowed-out military, then that's, that's the will of the people. So it is with intelligence. We, too, have not been immune from sequestration and its impacts. But if that's what the American people want in the way of an intelligence community, less capable, which in, means that we accept more risk, so be it. Michael, if I could just offer a comment. I, sure. I've looked at this from a historical perspective, and <clears throat> I'd start off by saying um, Americans don't like spies very much. Uh, think about that for a second. Uh, you love to read the books and watch the movies, but you don't invite us to dinner very often. So, <laughs> we, we, But if you think about who we are as a nation and the founding fathers and the laws and checks and balances, uh, this, there's tension in the Constitution. Um, this idea of privacy, I mean, that's, for some people that's absolutely supreme. Well, some others would think more about security. Uh, those two concepts are in tension. And so um, if you look at the history of this community, we're never ready at the start of the crisis. 
We flunked in World War One. We flunked in World War Two. We, the, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. We could have been reading their mail for a year or two before they did that and prevented it. We, we were arguing about who's in charge. And so they bombed Pearl Harbor, so we were reading their mail about four or five months after Pearl Harbor. And then we prevailed at Midway and so on. So the point I want to make for the audience is we build it. We were never ready. It happens. We build it up. It gets very credible. And then it's over, and then you tear it down. Now, I got to be the new director of the National Security Agency in 1992. What was the one word in Washington that mattered? Peace, dividend, translation. We want the money back. So we had a different agenda, a different focus, and we went hollow, as General Clapper uh, just uh, described. So uh, the, the American people drive this process. There are elected officials, you know, the authorities of the, of the Congress. They appropriate money and then authorize you to spend it and oversee to make sure you, you just spend it right. That's where these decisions are made about the size of the, of the budget and our focus and so on. And many of us were very worried in the 90s that we were becoming a hollow force, and we were. We weren't prepared for, in my view, what happened at 9-11 and the, and the terrorism that, that occurred after that. So um, it's a balancing act. It's up to the American people to be informed, involved, engage with your representatives in a meaningful way for us to get this right. All right, let's go to the audience. We've got about uh, 25 minutes left before we've got to go here. I think I, I think I saw this hand first, and it's closest to the microphone, so here, here it comes. Thank you very much to all for the, for the fine presentations. I'm Joe Stafford, a former Foreign Service officer. Until last February, I was the chief of mission at our embassy in, uh, in Sudan, uh, Khartoum, where... Uh, despite the prior status of the government, we have a reasonably good um, intel uh, relationship. I want to present, uh, ask for your comments on what seems to me a, a case of uh, perhaps a residual stovepiping. On uh, several occasions, at, at least, uh, uh, the Post received uh, reports from the FBI uh, presenting uh, what was claimed evidence of uh, a terrorist, uh, uh, terrorist element. Uh, my intel folks would tell we did not have FBI presence at the Post, but my uh, intel folks would tell me we doubt the credibility of this, uh, this information, whether it's sourcing or otherwise. Um, and we've told that uh, to the folks, FBI folks in Washington, but they've disregarded our views. They've said essentially, we don't care what your reservations are about uh, the credibility of this report. We're going to go ahead and publish it anyway, which um, at the least lead to con- uh, confusion and concern about who's really got the right story, how credible is this evidence. Uh, uh, under those circumstances. So I'd be grateful if uh, any of you would, would comment on what may seem as a mundane example, but certainly on the ground out in the field has, a, has an impact. Thank you. Well, I think uh, you, as the chief of mission, you are a witness sometimes to uh, sausage making uh, to some extent uh, in the community. Um, I recently had uh, commissioned um, from uh, my studies and analysis uh, organization, uh, which uh, he's not here, but I need to give credit to DNI Blair for establishing this uh, sort of a program analysis effort, which has done some great things on actually evaluating the performance of the community uh, and uh, <clears throat> in bringing to bear facts, data that the community has never had before. And so we did a uh, study on um, <clears throat> human reporting across the community and learned some very interesting things about the uh, differing approaches that 
uh, say the FBI, a, a newer member of the, of the national intelligence community, has in comparison with the other human-producing uh, elements, principally the CIA and DIA. And there's a different uh, culture about it, and uh, that that has led uh, to some, I think, very positive dialogue with the FBI as a member of the of the community, in uh, vetting sources and in uh, comparing uh, across the community with other reporting. Um, there is a, a somewhat of an issue here with uh, suppressing reporting. Uh, or letting it happen and then vetting it in in in, in the process, um, and we have we have, we continue to have instances of this. Although I don't think, uh, at least on today, uh, in the FBI leadership and particularly in, in light of a reorganization they've recently done here within the last couple months, uh, to raise uh, intelligence in the FBI organization as an important endeavor. Uh, I don't think uh, we're seeing what you uh, have characterized as what, or what I would take away from your comment is sort of the institutional arrogance. And I, I think that uh, we're, uh, we're attenuating that. Uh, let's go right down here in front and then, then right behind you. As the microphone comes to him, let me just add to that as, as a practitioner of someone looking at the intelligence reporting. One of the areas that we're investing in is the area of reports officers. These are individuals who look at the quality of that reporting and, and are able to see um, how it fits in, or in this particular case that, that you described from Khartoum, uh, really did not stand up against other collateral reporting or that made it suspect in terms of the, the quality. And, and so it's, it's one of those areas that we struggle with. And as you can imagine, particularly on terrorism and terrorism threats, the bar is very low. And it's something that NCTC and, and the other uh, counterterrorism communities struggle with by way of dissemination, obviously given the, the implications of, of being wrong on that. Uh, yes, uh, Mike Wall, <clears throat> three-time alum here at UT, um, OC-182, by the way, OED. And um, my question is, um, uh, with uh, the public seems to see the, uh, the problems with foreign policy, et cetera, that it's a chess game. But it's really a three-dimensional, I mean, it's a checkers game. It's a three-dimensional chess game, and you add time to it. And the compression of time with respect to the threats that are uh, emerging uh, almost uh, simultaneously worldwide with regard to sequestration and the, and the fact that the public you know, is, is not really in favor of expanding the military or the intel community to fight these kinds of threats, uh, how, how do you draw the line between what is classified and unclassified with which you are willing to actually share with the public to demonstrate the threat to, in, to, in, to encourage the public to be more in favor of increasing the power of the intel community? Thank you. Well, that's obviously uh, at, the, at the very nub of a, a challenge that we have on uh, describing uh, the threat and doing it in such a way that's convincing and persuasive. Um, and invariably, we, we get into uh, um, the issue of protecting uh, sources and methods, and that's a constant uh, balancing game uh, that we, we try to play. 
um, every year we put out a, a pretty extensive unclassified uh, report on worldwide threat. Um, um, I testify, um, along with my intelligence uh, leadership colleagues, uh, in public about, uh, about the threat. Um, we try to do as much as we can uh, in terms of uh, declassifying things uh, for the benefit of the public. But you're always going to have uh, – we're always going to have a credibility challenge because we cannot be as revelatory as we might like uh, to make this as, uh, as convincing and persuasive as, as we possibly can. Uh, I think we're doing better at it. Um, I've, over the last uh, year and a half, have declassified thousands of documents uh, pertaining to how the intelligence community is managed in an effort, and particularly how it's oversighted, in an effort to uh, restore uh, confidence and trust uh, in, in the intelligence community. But you put your finger on a, a, a crucial issue. There is no silver bullet uh, solution to the, to the dilemma that you point out. Lawrence Wright, right here. Thank you. Uh, General Clapper, uh, on the issue of credibility, um, in Syria, one of our first bombing strikes was against something called the Khorasan Group. And it was something for most Americans we hadn't heard about. Uh, and it's been called into question. I'd like to know uh you know how this issue arose how you know about it what is the reality and what was the decision about how to deal with the reaction that many people felt which is they're just using this to scare the american people in order to justify the attacks in syria yeah we can't win <laughs> um what the, this group represents is a group of uh uh expatriates if you will who are uh, veterans, al-Qaeda veterans from, al from Afghanistan and Pakistan. As I mentioned, there are some 16,000-plus foreign fighters who have migrated to Syria, and that includes a group from uh, al-Qaeda core, if you will, from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so they uh, have emerged as a, a threat to the homeland since there has been uh, what we've seen is active plotting against Europe and the homeland. And so I, I don't, you know, this is not unlike the vignette that uh, Mike McConnell described about when we have new news, uh, estimate changes, new developments, and it sounds like when we reveal it, <clears throat> and uh, I know the, President Obama has spoken to me sometimes about our uh, inelegant sense of timing sometimes, you know. Uh, <clears throat> can't you pick a better time for bad news? And uh, that we don't really control. And the fact that it comes out inelegantly timed, uh, that's not something that uh, we, we necessarily control. Yes, sir. Hold on, let's wait. Yes. Both the question, both question and the answer propel me toward the fundamental issue here of the media's constantly conveyed distrust of the intelligence community. And it's part of the 24-hour cycle. 
How do you fill the thing, the rest of it? But if you just go back and take an extensive look, you will find it's extraordinarily rare when the media and its coverage is focusing on something that's gone well, timing or elsewhere. So this critical question of how does the public get its view of the performance in intelligence community and the need for it. It's the media's interpretation that drives that issue. The only occasional voices that counter elsewhere are the chairman of the Senate and House Select Committees. But when they do, in fact, speak up, it rarely gets extensive, ongoing coverage or attention. So it's a speech, not a question. <laughs> A lot, a lot of people thought post-Snowden that there should have been a more rigorous defense of the intelligence community by policymakers. Um, Admiral McConnell, I, I, can, I can sense that the others on the panel may want to dodge this question, so I'll throw it to you. Um, did, from your vantage point, did it, did it seem like a very uh, low-intensity defense of the mission of the IC? Uh, well, in fairness, I still um, maintain clearances and I have an opportunity to advise on some of these issues. So I, I had um, a strong view on <clears throat> not being able to be as responsive as we could have been. Now, <clears throat> we all mature over time. I grew up worrying about protecting sources of methods and so on. And Jim Claver made a comment yesterday. His father was a signer. He was a signer and never talked about it. I can remember the first time I heard about NSA was a whisper. Uh, I keep asking myself, who are we fooling? Uh, the Russians know. The Chinese know. Uh, everybody who matters knows. So why aren't we telling the American people? So I, while the community is moving more toward transparency, uh, I think if I were given a position again in, in some leadership role, I would be infinitely more aggressive than I have been in the past. And it doesn't mean I wouldn't protect sources and methods and if the president's got a problem, you wouldn't contain the information and so on. But who we are and what we are, I agree 1,000% with what Jim Clapper said yesterday. This idea of the community collecting metadata, which is not content, storing it under control conditions so that when there's a stimulus from terrorism abroad, you can look into the data and find out what you, you might be able to prevent some kind of terrible attack. If we had disclosed that up front and talked about it up front, it wouldn't be an issue. But because of the way it was disclosed, the public, the way the media reported it, and I watched this very, very closely, the way the media reported it is they're spying on you. They're reading your content. I had people just ask me, why would you want to read my email? The, it is against the law for this community to read your email. Uh, law enforcement can read it with a if you have appropriate warranted collection and so on. One of the reasons I was so adamant about getting our FISA bill uh, updated when I went in to serve as DNI was to get the legal framework uh, appropriately aligned so that the activities that we engage in are consistent with the law. The only thing we have to guide our actions is the law, and no one is above the law. So let's get the law right, and then the actions will flow from that, and people can be held accountable. Does anybody else want to comment on... Admiral Inman's point of policymakers making in a defense of the intelligence community sources and methods. 
I don't quite understand what your comment is, Michael. Should policymakers be more aggressive in defending, defending the forces and methods? defending the intelligence community's mission? Well, sure. I mean, I'd, I'd like uh, a lot more cheerleading. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll take a different cut on that. I, I, that's a, I think that's a good quote. I'll, what, I'll what, take more cheerleading. What I really like is when a four-star combatant commander is very specific in front of your committee or any other part of the oversight committees or publicly and says the fact that we have 230 DIA officers serving in Afghanistan serving a four-star, General Campbell, each and every day. Talk about that. That is absolutely fine. And it talks about the value proposition of intelligence attached to operational capability and operational decisions, in, in that case, in the battlefield, the literal battlefield. But it's not done enough. Okay. Can I just reinforce Admiral Edmund's point? Yeah, I, I've had some downtime since I've been here for this conference, and, and I've had CNN run in the background. And the only thing on the news right now is Ebola. I mean, everything else has dropped off. I mean, all day long. And... The reporting is we should fire the head of the CDC, and the hospital here in Dallas failed. I mean, it's just that's the nature of the reporting, and it's a 24-hour cycle. Uh, and then when you talk about anything in this community, it's, it's, it's in the context, well, you failed, as opposed to you got something right. There are two questions in this vicinity right here. So, Thank you. I'm Alan Tully. I'm a historian at uh, UT. And you've all talked today, this morning, about tensions. And I think those are extraordinarily important and so on. But there's one, one piece, it seems to me, and it's an umbrella piece, which I haven't heard. And that seems to me to be the tension between national security and international capitalism uh, and, and the world economy in some way, global economy. Uh, that is us. But it also makes us, one might argue, a party to various things that happen in the world. And I just want to, want to hear you reflect a little bit on that, on that issue. It has implications for, for your uh, budgetary kind of issues, it seems to me. What kinds of limitations one sees in relationship to any kind of circumscription of larger kinds of economic development and connections, American connections here or there? So this is more of a philosophic question than, a, than a yeah, anything else. I, I'll take a cut at it. I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm reading. I, I will say that the uh, what I think are going to become more prominent features of uh, our national security uh, tapestry is uh, global issues, uh, such as the impacts of climate change. We can have that debate, I guess, but the, the, the facts are there. The availability of energy, the availability of food, the availability of water, uh, which are already stressing the international community, have profound impacts on economic uh, conditions. And, of course, given the globalization of our economies, um, I think that is going to be more and more a prominent feature uh, of, of our national security and, in turn, what we do in the intelligence community to enlighten uh, policymakers about the impacts of these these factors. Yes, sir. Yeah, Bob Hutchings. I'm dean of the LBJ School and former chairman of the uh, National Intelligence Council, where I worked with you, Jim. Um, the question reflects those two perches and the growing gap or the worrying gap between the worlds of the academy 
and of intelligence. I won't say it's never been, the gap has never been wider, that's probably an overstatement, but the intelligence, some of us on the academic side worry about this, and I think the organizers of this conference show that we're trying to reach out and be more relevant to the world of intelligence. I know there's some inside the intelligence community who are doing so as well, but the problem has been 9-11 pushed analysts deeper into secrecy, into old Cold War habits. The National Intelligence Council, I suppose, is a partial exception, but the community as a whole, the culture is, is a challenge to reconcile the, the growing need for secrecy and the growing need for openness to access the world out there. So I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I, I, again, uh, we've, I think, in different contexts here, have spoken to this dilemma of uh, transparency and um, um, what we do. I mean, the nature of intelligence uh, is, is secret. And so how do you balance those, uh, those two poles? Um, and this is the whole subject of uh, transparency. Well, transparency is wonderful. Uh, we should do more of it. We should explain to the American people uh, what we're doing. Um, but at the same time, adversaries go to school on that transparency, and there are unfortunately uh, some examples of that, uh, particularly in the, in the counterterrorism uh, context, uh, that have been very harmful because of uh, either our sanctioned transparency or unsanctioned transparency that things have shown up in the media. Um, the whole business with uh, the revelations that followed WikiLeaks and, uh, and now Snowden, well, that is having, no question, a, a chilling effect on, on the community just internally in terms of uh, our efforts to promote sharing within the community, both horizontally and vertically to our state and local tribal and private sector uh, customers. <clears throat> and so this, this is a, uh, you put your finger on, a, on an issue. Uh, I'm not sure I've got a, uh, a satisfying answer for it other than it's something we have to work through. We try to make these decisions uh, on a day-to-day -day basis about uh, what is it we should say publicly versus what is it we need to, to protect. And that's, it's just a, it's a fundamental tension in, in, in our system. Uh, the NIC, and by the way, Bob, thanks for your ser service as uh, chair, is, uh, I think, a, um, a beacon of transparency because uh, one of the things we do promote uh, via the National Intelligence Council, it's been a long historical function of it, <coughs> is uh, outreach to academic world. That's why we bring in, out, out, in outside experts. But I have to be honest, uh, and the State Department, I have to give credit to them. INR does the same. I have to be honest, though, that um, everything costs money, and uh, it, too, uh, has not escaped. Our, our outreach has not escaped uh, the impacts of sequestration. We're, we're at, unfortunately out of time. Um, I want to thank our panelists, uh, especially General Clapper, for making himself available this morning, also to Admiral McConnell and David Shedd. Um, this has been a wonderful um, experience to be able to share and help educate about what the community does, but also a contribution to history as we try and take a look at how our post-9-11 institutions are working. So thank you all very much for your participation.
cut the if, mic if, on. Uh, That's the only way to end it. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, as my last act as an intelligence officer, I want to provide strategic warning. Um, there's a firestorm coming, and we're not going to address it until it gets here, and we'll probably overreact. And let me put it in context. Our economy is $16 trillion a year. Every day through the, US, uh, through the global banking system, $13 trillion is cleared. Half that money goes through two banks in New York City. Now, whether it's al-Nusra or whoever it is out there, with the Chinese making literally thousands of malware attack tools uh, every year, at some point, these capabilities are going to go to some of the ex these extremist groups that want to target us in a significant way. We have the technology and the capability to address this issue. We do not have the legal framework or authorities to do it. So uh, for an institution like, like uh, this with great focus, this is a national problem. We need to focus on it, and we need to have informed debate to get the Congress to, f to focus on it and get the appropriate legislative framework. That's a great note to end on. Thank you.